Tonight I'd like to speak about the Brahma-viharas, that of metta, or loving-kindness, karuna, or compassion, mudita, empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. These are all qualities of heart and mind that are present when we are connected, open, and at ease with life. We find them naturally coming forth in our vipassana practice, and at other times we consciously cultivate them through the practices of the Brahma-viharas. During this retreat we have at different times spoken about all of them, And I just like to bring them together under one roof because they often work so closely together. And also because they play a big part in our interrelating with the world around us. In our relationships, when we're suffering, and in a place of turbulence, often simply remembering that there's another way to relate can help us to accept the situation we might find ourselves in. When we work with the cultivation and development of the Brahma-viharas, we're working towards making, not so much making, but accepting them as our natural home, our divine home, or our best home, as the words Brahma-vihara relate in Pali. So metta, or loving-kindness, is usually taught first because it helps to lay the foundation for the unfolding of the other Brahma-viharas. For those of you who only ever sit the first half of the retreat, you might not be aware that we do actually move on to the other ones. Uh, It is just because metta helps to lay this foundation that we spend a fair bit of time with it. But the other ones are equally as valuable. The metta helps our hearts to come to the place of inclusiveness, a boundlessness that is non-discriminating. And when we feel at home and at ease with the world, we can more easily open to other people's sufferings, to their joy, and we can more easily trust in the lawfulness of life. So remembering that metta, or loving-kindness, has the qualities of unconditional love, kindness, gentleness, and friendliness. It is a love that does not discriminate as to where or whom it falls upon. It is a gentleness of heart that is deeply connected with all beings. One of the root meanings of the Pali word metta is 
gentle, likened to a gentle rain that falls on everything, does not choose or select where it falls. The other root meaning of metta is friend. So through metta practice, we come to understand about friendship. What friendship is, the endurance of friendship, the caring nature of friendship, and learning not just to be a friend to others, but how to be our own best friend. Metta practice is a practice that works with freeing ourselves from the illusion of separation, healing the wounds that we carry around because of this illusion, helping us to reconnect in this world. It has the quality of a selfless love, a love that is not based upon the desire to possess, but simply has that friendliness of heart. To love and to be unconditionally loved is something that we all yearn for. And yet so often it feels impossible, so far from the truth since the time of being born, experiencing the feelings of separation, as a child crying out when our needs are unmet, feelings of not being understood, not being heard, feeling forgotten, alone, isolated. So what is it that obstructs this loving-kindness, this metta. It's simply habits of mind, nothing more than habituated patterns. As a child, we may have felt the need to protect ourselves, not having wisdom to draw upon. But as we grew older, we may have kept these same habits, protecting us, and what they turn into is the prison that we stand in. At some point they start to isolate us. And we forget that we've locked ourselves inside this prison. It can be quite interesting to look at our lives and see just how much we've pulled away, stood back from life, stood back from people, from animals, from nature stood alone and apart from life. Oftentimes we go through life and there may be a few beings that we can feel that we can open our hearts to, but it's very selected, very conditioned. In our isolation, if someone then does something knowingly or unknowingly that harms us, we move into greater separation with it. We begin to close off from life. But through the practice of metta, we begin to see that which obstructs metta. 
We see these boundaries that we've come up with. We see our habituated responses that we've constructed. Having constructed them, they simply need to be deconstructed. Simply by seeing them, recognizing, feeling the pain of the limitation. Someone recently sent me something that um, spoke to me a lot about what metta practice is. And it's a, a version of computer metta. It was sent. <laughs> um, it was sent to me by somebody whom I know probably doesn't know anything about metta, and yet when I read it, it just screamed out metta. It's called installing love, and it's a conversation between a customer services rep and a customer. So, customer services rep, can you install love? Customer, I can do that. I'm not very technical, but I think I'm ready to install it now. What do I do first? The rep. The first step is to open your heart. Have you located your heart, ma'am? Customer, yes, I have, but there are several programs running right now. Is it okay to install while they are running? Rep, what programs are running, ma'am? Customer. Let me see. I have pasthurt.exe, <laughs> lowesteem.exe, grudge.exe, and resentment.com running right now. I'll drop the endings on those. <laughs> the rep. No problem. Love will automatically erase past hurt from your current operating system. It may remain in your permanent memory, but it will no longer disrupt other programs. Love will eventually overwrite low esteem with a module of its own called high esteem. However, you have to completely turn off grudge and resentment. Those programs prevent love from being properly installed. Can you turn those off, ma'am? Customer, I don't know how to turn them off. Can you tell me how? Rep, my pleasure. Go to your start menu and invoke forgiveness. <laughs> Do this as many times as necessary until grudge and resentment have been completely erased. Customer, okay, I'm done. Love has started installing itself automatically. Is that normal? Rep, yes it is. You should receive a message that says it will reinstall for the life of your heart. Do you see that message? Customer. Yes, I do. Is it completely installed? Rep. Yes, but remember that you have only the base program. You need to begin connecting to other hearts in order to get the upgrades. <laughs> Customer. Oops, I have an error message already. What should I do? Rep. What does the message say? Customer, it says, error 412, program not run on internal components. What does that mean? Rep, don't worry, ma'am, that's a common problem. It means that the love program is set up to run on external hearts, but has not yet been run on your own heart. It is one of those complicated programming things, but in non-technical terms, it means you have to love your own machine before it can love others. Customer, so what should I do? Rep, 
Can you find the directory called self-acceptance? <laughs> Customer. Yes, I have it. Rep. Excellent. You're getting good at this. Customer. Thank you. <laughs> Rep. You're welcome. Click on the following files and then copy them to my heart directory. Forgive self, self-esteem, realize worth, and goodness. The system will override any conflicting files and begin patching any faulty programming. Also, you need to delete self-criticize from all directories and then empty your recycle bin afterwards to make sure it is completely gone and never comes back. Customer, got it. Hey, my heart is filling up with really neat files. Smile is playing on my monitor right now, and it shows that warmth, peace, and contentment are copying themselves all over my heart. Rep, then love is installing and running. You should be able to handle it from here. One more thing before I go. Customer, yes? Rep, love is freeware. Be sure to give it and its various modules to everybody you meet. They will in turn share it with other people, and they will return some really neat modules back to you. <laughs> Customer, I will. Thank you for your help. <laughs> so this is meta practice. <laughs> A simple reprogramming of the computer. The files that keep us from feeling meta, past hurt, low esteem, grudges, resentment, and self-criticism. It seems quite familiar to me. What helps to break these patterns? Forgiveness, self-acceptance, goodness, and realizing worth. Each time in metta practice that difficulties arise, and we're able to stay aligned with the capacity of the heart to love, we are also practicing wisdom. We do this by not blotting out all of the pain and torments of mind, but softening towards them, accepting that which is difficult. Ajahn Sumedho, whose tapes you've been listening to on Saturday evening, says about metta, metta is not blinding. It means that you are willing to admit weaknesses, faults, within your own experience of life without making that into anything. It's clarity. The mind is clear, radiant, bright, and reflective, rather than just a pink cloud that we blot out every ugly thing with. That's not metta. That's projecting a pink cloud from your mind. So the near enemy of loving-kindness is attached love, love with desire. So often our love comes with these conditions. We want something in return for our love, wanting someone to be a special way, wanting them to love us in return, or feeling that someone needs to be worthy of our love. And at times we aren't aware of how conditioned this love can be until 
somebody does something that we don't like and we instantly want to retract it, to take it back, to feel that they are unworthy of our love. But metta, or loving kindness, is not bound by our likes and our dislikes. We're able to see people in their totality. And this is where metta differs from sentimentality. When we're feeling sentimental, there is delusion present in that we do not see into the totality of this person. We become focused on the good, blocking out that which is difficult. What often happens with the difficult people is that we stop seeing them as living beings. I saw this really clearly one time when I was doing a self-retreat, sitting outside of the porch of this little cabin, sitting there for hours at a time. There came a couple of little mice that were co-inhabiting this porch with me. And at first when I saw them, they were two very playful mice and they would roll around and tumble together so quickly. At first I thought there was ten mice there. And then, you know, as they'd slow down, come out of their tumbling, I saw that there was really only two. And I hadn't been very fond of mice. No, they leave their little droppings everywhere. They tend to like the food that I like. And I didn't feel very happy about sharing it with them. So, in this retreat site, there was also a cat that lived there. And not wanting these mice to be there, I thought, well, you know, maybe if the cat came along and ate the mice, I wouldn't really be breaking the precepts, because I knew that I couldn't possibly kill these mice myself. So there was just kind of a secret hope that this might happen. But over time, you know, as the days went by, I started to... um, grow quite fond of these. In fact, they came to be named Double Trouble. Trouble was the braver one of the two. You know, he was he was very bold and he'd come, you know, running out and he'd see me and he'd not be afraid at all and he'd just keep going. And then Double would come along behind and would be really timid and as soon as um, it, she, he, whatever it was, would see me, would kind of retract, run away and, and wait till I was gone. And so, you know, I started noticing there was this fondness. And then one day the cat did come. And I was so worried about double trouble. (laughs) I was so worried that the cat might get them. And then, you know, what I saw is I had started to connect with them as living beings. And out of that, my heart just quite naturally began to open. Metta also helps us to break down the mind of judgment. We have such strong habits of judging everyone, everything. But with metta, it starts to become more fluid. The judgment starts to soften and opening and accepting. I saw this one time when I was practicing in Burma. I'd been doing Vipassana practice and had gotten in a very tight, agitated state. And then my teacher had said to me um, to switch to metta for a period of time. And 
as in doing intensive metta, it's not so necessary to walk really slowly, I decided to do metta outside walking. And it was a very tight, crowded compound. The only place I could find where I could really walk was right beside the toilets. So I started walking there and just sending metta to everyone who came by. And everyone uses the toilets. So (laughs) there was all kinds of people coming by. And many of these people, over my time there, I built up a lot of judgment around. You know, I was having some difficulties with the cultural differences, just just with the way things were. But as I I walked by these toilets, sending metta to everyone, you know, and all different kinds of people, you know, monks and nuns and lay people, lay women, happy people, sad people, lonely people, people that had irritated me, I could just see all of this judgment breaking down. And then it started to feel like such a great relief, you know, not to have to be weighing up in my mind whether someone was worthy of my love or not, but just be freely offering, freely sharing this. So metta, the practice that helps us to move back into connection with the world, dissolving the veil of separation, this bringing about a sense of ease and well-being. Starting to really trust in our own inherent goodness and the goodness of others. But as we begin to open to all beings, opening to them with the friendly heart, we also Notice that beings suffer, that there is the place of suffering. Opening to the suffering becomes the birthplace of compassion. In opening to suffering, it's really important to remember that it just is something that happens through having a body, through having a mind. It's something that happens in nature. Nature is filled with suffering, however beautiful it may be. The last time I was in Burma, sitting in the back of the monastery, on a small platform, surrounded by nature, was very beautiful. Very few people came back there. A sense of just being a part of nature. One day sitting there quietly, opening my eyes, I saw this snake. It was very, very beautiful. He was doing a dance. I don't know if you've ever watched a snake that's upright and just weaving back and forth. It has such an elegant beauty to it. And then, all of a sudden, it struck out struck out at a frog. It had been the the dance of life and death. During another retreat, sitting outside, sitting in a small grove of rocks and trees, every day sitting there, feeling once again the nature around me. What would happen as I sat there is little animals, because of my stillness, would come very close 
not really realizing I was there. And then as I moved, they'd jump into terror. They'd be fearful. I really had a sense of how much fear is in animals. One day I was sitting there on this beautiful rock that was a platform, and there came this little chipmunk, and she was just scolding me, scolding me. And I thought, okay, I must be doing something wrong here. And I figured I must be blocking her hole into her, her home. So I decided I'd move, and I went and I sat um, a few feet away from it so that she could have access. And I sat for quite a long time, and there was no sign of her. So I was a little bit attached to sitting on this rock. The, the insects didn't quite crawl all over me in the same way. Um, so I went back and sat on the rock. And then shortly after that, suddenly there was this, um, just these thickets right behind me. Out of these thickets came flying this little chipmunk on the rock beside me. And we both had a moment of total terror. And she had these pudgy little cheeks that were filled with food. And she just blasted them out and screeched. And I jumped. (laughs) And I quickly left. But I think she was probably scared enough she didn't come back for a while. But, you know, when I was sitting there, I just had such a strong sense of how much fear is in nature. How scary it can be and how hard it is to survive. Nature also reminds us of the impermanence, of how things change, constant change in the world of nature. It's constant, this process of birth and death and decay. And so nature, as beautiful as it is, contains this element of suffering. It's a condition of life. Nature also has this capacity to hold the suffering whenever we've been out in nature. And really just, you know, in that place of suffering, letting our hearts be open, be touched, be touched by the sun, the wind. Those moments feeling the depth of connection with the world. Not feeling separate in those moments. Out of these moments we gain some insight into how to open to suffering. How to open to the pain that we encounter in life. So compassion is classically described as the quivering or trembling of the heart in response to suffering. It happens when we come in contact with suffering and are able to connect and respond without being well overwhelmed or broken by it. It has the quality of fearlessness to it. It's where we're willing and able to act with a courageous heart that steps outside the boundaries of a small, separate self. Compassion may pull us into action when we come in contact with that which is unwholesome, harmful, or damaging to others. We become motivated by the desire to alleviate suffering rather than pulling away, cutting off, denying, 
I'd like to t share a story of whose origins I don't know, other than that it came from somebody who worked as a volunteer at Stanford Hospital. And one day there came into the hospital a little girl named Liz, who was suffering from a, a very rare and serious disease. Her only chance of recovery appeared to be to get a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother who'd had the same disease and had miraculously survived it. So the doctor explained to the little boy what was needed and asked him if he would be willing to give his blood to his sister. And he only hesitated for one moment before taking a deep breath and saying, yes, I'll do it if it will save Liz. The blood transfusion went ahead, and he lay in bed next to his sister, and he smiled, as everyone else did, as the color started to come back into Liz's face. Then his face grew pale, and his smile faded, and he looked up at the doctor, and he asked with his voice trembling, Will I start to die right away, he said. And of course, he didn't die. He had simply misunderstood the doctor. But he had demonstrated that trembling of the heart that helps us to become much bigger than what we think we are. Compassion is something that we express not only to others, but equally well, we need to feel it for ourselves. It's really just that simple act of not abandoning ourselves when we are in the place of need, when we are in the place of suffering. I'd like to take inspiration from people who have walked this path before us. One of these people is a monk who lived in the time of the Buddha, whose name was Mahapusadeva. Mahapusadeva was not one of the people that easily realized the awakened mind. It took him some time, and it took him very diligent practice. As a part of his day, he would go on alms round and walk from the monastery into the nearest village. And for 19 years, he practiced in the way of walking from the monastery to the village. And as he walked, each time that he lost his mindfulness, he would stop and retrace his steps back to where he had lost the mindfulness. When the villagers would see him doing this, they would wonder what he was doing. They would come up and they would think he was lost. And you try not to engage in, in conversation, but to really just stay with this practice. And it's said that in the 20th year, he attained full liberation, complete enlightenment. But he was somebody who just never gave up on himself. He just kept doing the best that he could. This is a poem by the Dalai Lama called Never Give Up. 
Never give up, no matter what's going on. Never give up. Develop the heart. Too much energy is spent developing the mind instead of the heart. Be compassionate, not just to your friends, but to everyone. Be compassionate. Work for peace in your heart and in the world. Work for peace. And I say again, never give up. No matter what is happening, no matter what is going on around you, never give up. Never giving up on ourselves, holding ourselves dear in that moment of our own suffering. The near enemy, or that which can mask itself as compassion, is sorrow or grief. It's where we are experiencing the suffering through the veil of separation. It may occur as a slight contempt while seeing another person as weaker or inferior, thereby feeling sorry for them. But we are not truly connecting with the universality of suffering. It has an element of aversion, which may come from states such as anger, fear, or grief, that pulling away of the mind. It can also be experienced as self-righteous anger, where there's still a sense of you and me, rather than that this is suffering, What can we do about it? When the near enemy arises, that's when we find our energy being depleted, getting lost in grief, sadness, feeling shattered by the experience and unable to hold the immensity of it. In opening to suffering, I found in myself both the tendency to feel responsible for other people's suffering and to want to try to take it on myself, becoming burdened in a way that was helpful to no one. And I found it really helpful to remember that it's only hard to hold the immensity of the suffering when there is someone who is holding it. Once again, letting the wisdom factor be present. For me, remembering back to the peace and ease that is felt out in nature. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. It's where we're so disconnected that we can't stand the suffering. We shut down to it in a way that causes harm to ourselves and others. Sometimes this cruelty is very blatant. When in our rage we say things that we know will hurt another person. At other times, our cruelty can be much more subtle. It might be where we make a joke that has a dig to it. However it manifests, it's a clear indicator that compassion is not present. So it can be a reminder when we see ourselves being cruel to look and see what it is in our own hearts 
that we're finding unacceptable, what we're distancing ourselves from. Compassion can be a very humbling experience. It's not one where pride easily arises, even to be fearless in the face of suffering. If we're really truly connected to the suffering, we know of its depths, and therefore there's nothing to brag about in being able to stand in the face of suffering. It's simply that we're called into action, no bones about it, a spontaneous and natural act. Shantideva, an 8th century Tibetan teacher, says in his um, book, The Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, says, Even when I have done things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises. It is just like having fed myself. I hope for nothing in return. Compassionate action in our lives may be quite simple. We don't have to go out and stop the wars, save the hungry. For some of us, this may be appropriate and called for action, but all of us can begin by facing the demons inside, the fear, the hatred, the anger, frustration, the boredom. When they arise, we can embrace them with kindness and care. Our practice can be seen as compassionate action. Our willingness to understand the nature of suffering. It's compassion's function to remember However great the joy and happiness may be, there are still those caught in suffering. It moves us again and again into action in the world. It prevents loving kindness and empathetic joy from turning into a self-satisfied complacency with only a small and limited view of happiness. Compassion is continually motivating us to deeper and deeper understanding of suffering. Compassion also guards equanimity from becoming cold and indifferent. And by doing so, it helps us to discover true equanimity. Compassion also needs the balance of wisdom, or we lack the skillfulness to know when it is time to act and when this will lead to greater suffering. It can be where we are aware of the immensity of suffering, but lack the wisdom to know that which is skillful. What is skillful means. And we see it so often in the world where there may be people who are working for very good causes. But the way that they go about it is, is to respond with the same anger and rage to which they've been reacting to. And it's really in the silence of our own hearts that this wisdom can arise. Remembering, too, 
that will not always know what the right action is, that in life we make mistakes. The Dalai Lama is somebody who has had to make a lot of decisions that affect the welfare of other people. And he admits sometimes he makes mistakes. And what he says is, the, the only thing I can truly rely on is my sincere motivation. So just bringing the sincerity of our motivation to our actions and letting that be enough, trusting in this. To have a compassionate heart is to be motivated by the desire for all beings to be free from suffering, to move from this place of intention, not being fearful or overwhelmed in the face of pain and sorrow. Combined with wisdom, we can let compassion come into our lives moment by moment. And that way we're opening to the immensity of suffering moment by moment. In just the same way that we open to mindfulness moment by moment. Mudita is the next of the Brahma-viharas, often translated as sympathetic, empathetic, or appreciative joy. It's where we find delight and happiness in seeing the happiness, good fortune, or joy of another. The root meaning is to be pleased or to have a sense of gladness. In metta practice, we have come in contact with all beings through connecting with our own desire for happiness and the des- the sharing this desire with all beings. In compassion practice, we expand this to be able to open to the suffering of others. In mudita, or appreciative joy, we begin to come in contact with others through opening to their happiness. As Carol mentioned the other night, this is said to be the most difficult of the Brahma-viharas. Oftentimes when we come in contact with another person's happiness, we can easily fall into the far enemy, which is jealousy, envy, judgment, or comparison. The feeling of, they're happy, but I'm not happy a recognition in our own lives that we're not happy. Or, they don't deserve this, but I do. Someone else gets what we want, and we think, I'd really like that for myself. Sometimes we see the good qualities in others, and we start to look into ourselves and judge ourselves in comparison, feeling like we don't quite match up. These are all very painful states, difficult states. And yet we can really just turn our attention to rejoicing in the happiness of others and just remembering how plentiful 
happiness can be when we use any moment in life of seeing the good fortune of another or another person's happiness to let it be a moment of our own happiness. We start to see that it's quite contagious and how by in sharing happiness it only becomes more abundant. The heart becomes freer. I live with a mudita junkie and I'm not sharing anything secret. He, he really is somebody who easily can delight in another person's happiness. And I just see in his life how, how much more joy comes in, how he's so much happier because of the happiness of others. We can learn to be happy even though another person's happiness may not be what we would think of as happiness. And this is an example of how this can be so, and it's my example, um, that there could be someone who's very happy because they're getting married, they plan to settle down, to build a house, and have a family. And to me, this might sound like bondage. But to another person, it's, it's really what they want in life. So finding that place in our hearts where we can delight in their happiness. But of course it has to be really true happiness for them. It would, you know, it would be very different if they were wanting to get married to someone who's a very abusive person or are in debts over their heads and cannot possibly afford to feed a child. So it has to be really authentic happiness. learning to rejoice in the happiness of people whom are difficult for us. And by just seeing that this difficult person has some good fortune in their life, maybe they're not all bad, letting our hearts soften, seeing them in a more kind-hearted way. <clears throat> Mudita is also said to elim help eliminate boredom. And this is because we start to connect with the little things in life. We don't have to wait for the big happiness, but can delight in the small moments of good fortune or happiness. One of the people in my own life who really seems to embody the quality of mudita is Hoganson, the Zen master I've spoken of. You know, he's such a delightful, mischievous, impish character. And when I would spend time with him, there would be many people coming to visit him. And I saw how he was able to just delight in another person's happiness. And then one day I was with him and I re received some news that really brought happiness to me. And in that moment of sharing it with him, he grabbed my hands and we stood there jumping up and down in the middle of the room like a couple of four-year-olds. But what I also realized with him is in that moment he could really share in my happiness, but he did not fall into collusion with me with that happiness. He did not become deluded by it. In the next moment, he could equally as well pull out the Zen stick and clobber me over the head. And Mudita has a real energizing quality to it. 
And it's important to stay connected in the experience of it, or we get swept away into exuberance, its near enemy. This year has been a year where I've had to learn this lesson in sometimes painful ways. That there's been just a lot of joy, and with this, some exuberance. One day I was going for a walk with a very dear friend, Um, And just filled with the feeling of joy and being swept away, not being mindful in it. As I went to say goodbye to my friend, suddenly I saw her. And she was really in a a state of suffering. And I saw that it had been really difficult for her to be around this exuberant energy. And because I'd not been mindful, I'd fallen out of connection and hadn't realized her pain. It's mudita's function to remind us of the joy when we're lost in sorrow. Mudita also helps to keep compassion from being drowned or overwhelmed in pain. Mudita softens the wisdom of equanimity. It's the ability to stay light in the face of the suffering of the world. Sometimes it's described as the smile on the Buddha's face. So upeka, or equanimity, is the last of the Brahma-viharas. Upeka, translated, means balance. It comes an unshakable balance in the mind that is rooted in wisdom or clear seeing. When there's this balance, this unshakable balance, combined with wisdom, there is a sense of full presence. The mind does not fall into extremes. It can be a very subtle state And yet, it is so profound. And really, none of the other Brahma-viharas can unfold well without it. Equanimity's near enemy is indifference. That's where we're not connected, disconnecting. And this is why equanimity has a sense of full presence. When we have equanimity, we trust in the lawfulness of life, the law of karma or cause and effect, in the understanding that our actions have an effect, it can be very freeing. By paying attention to what motivates us, we can be planting seeds that are wholesome and helpful in leading us to liberation. And in this way, we see that we are ultimately responsible for our own happiness. If we live in a way that perpetuates peace and harmony, we feel more peaceful and harmonious. If we live in a way that creates anger, hatred, and separation, we will suffer. The classical phrase of equanimity practice, all beings are owners, of their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions and not upon our wishes for them.
it helps to give the strength to love so that love doesn't fall into attachment. It helps to bring the durability to love. It keeps love and compassion from moving into uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity gives compassion the strength to move into action without attachment to the results, allowing and trusting in things just as they are. It helps strengthen the quality of fearlessness, bringing calmness and patience to a situation. We hear about the Brahma-viharas and may often think of them as being some lofty ideal that maybe after years or lifetimes of practice we may be fully able to embody. But in my own mind, I don't just see them as a lofty ideal. I really see them as the baseline or the bottom line of what is possible as a human being. What we can do when we can do nothing else. When things go horribly wrong, mistakes are made, when we feel helpless, when all else fails, what we can do in these moments is we can still love, we can still care. These Brahma-viharas are a part of what it is to be a human being. It's where we can really touch into what it means. A few examples of what I'm speaking about are about when somebody is dying, somebody is letting go of everything. We have no control. We have no power. We can't change what they are going through, and yet we can still love them. We can still care. When our children are lost, are confused, maybe they cannot even listen to our words, we can still hold them in our hearts. Not only can we give love when we can give nothing else, at times when we are in the place of despair, when at times when life seems so bleak, we too can open to receive love. I had a very strong experience of this one time in my life. I had been sick for a number of years, and at times it just felt like the light had gone out, and yet the body just kept going. These times were very dark, very bleak, And yet there was one person who could, in the midst of that bleakness, make me laugh. And that one person, that one smile, that one piece of happiness was the link that kept me going. Sometimes I think we intellectualize the basic instruction of metta, of seeing the goodness 
into too much of a concept. And it can really be so simple. Seeing that one face that brings brightness. Seeing a plant that we love. Seeing a setting sun. Tasting the ocean. Touching a tree. Walking with a friend. Smiling with a strange, smiling at a stranger. Helping someone we do not know. Seeing the goodness in the smallest ways, the simple ways, and we just keep expanding the circle. We just keep seeing the goodness. It also happens with compassion, where we hit that bottom line, that baseline. It happens when we have a very dear friend come to us, in an intense place of suffering, what is it that we can do? It may be that all we can do is simply listen, to bear witness to their pain. When there's nothing else that we can do, it's compassion that can hold them. And mudita is really the world's gift to us. When our happiness has run out, we can look to the world around us and join in the happiness of others. And it's simply offered. We see the baseline of equanimity in that moment when we're backed into a corner and there's no escape. We've struggled and we've fought. And then we find ourselves simply surrendering, bowing to the lawfulness of life. So whether we find ourselves in the highest peak or in the lowest valley, the Brahma-viharas are always near at hand. They are simply a part of the human experience. We need only to recognize them in our life to make the place in our life for them to become known. They're how we learn to relate to the world around us. How we learn what it is to be a human being. I'd like to pl- <laughs> I'd like to close with a poem. It's called Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you how he too was someone 
who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is you I have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So let's sit for a moment. 